This morning we're going to be in John chapter 11, starting with verse 28. And last Sunday we covered the first half of the chapter, chapter 11. It was a great foundation. Uh, so if you didn't get it, please check it out free online or get a CD. And today we're going to finish up 28 through 57. Now, a little bit of an overview. Jesus is about one day's journey from Bethany, from where Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus are. Lazarus is very sick, so they send a messenger over to Jesus to say, the one whom you love is sick. Brother Lazarus is sick. So what does Jesus do? He waits two more days before he goes to travel to see Lazarus. And that's part of the first message. Was, it's pretty awesome. God's timing, why he does the things that we do, why we often don't understand his timing, but he has a better plan that we could ever possibly imagine. So by the time Jesus gets there, Lazarus has been dead for four days. He's already decomposing, all right? Death is not pretty. We left off with Martha, Lazarus' sister, accosting Jesus, and now Jesus is going to talk to Mary. But Jesus reassures Martha that he is the resurrection and the life. Now we're going to start with verse 28. It says, And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, following her, saying, She is going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now we spoke of the elevation where Bethany was on the east side of the Mount of Olives, and there was a road that came from the Jericho area, and it kind of winded. So where you were, it must have been a beautiful scenic view. Where you were, you could actually look out eastward and see his entourage, him coming towards the, towards the town of Bethany. So Mar Martha is so excited, and she has mixed emotions, no doubt. She runs out to see Jesus. She talks with him as he's still continuing. Then she goes back, tells Mary, you know, the teacher is here. Mary runs out. So as Jesus is coming, he's making his ascent. The sisters are coming to speak with, with him personally out of the, the noise and the hubbub of everything that's going on uh, through the morning process. But we find in three instances of Scripture, and we're going to cover this also next Sunday, that Mary, we always find her at the feet of Jesus. And I'll tell you the truth, you can never go wrong, whether it's literally, as in Mary's case, or figuratively being at the feet of Jesus. Martha was a little bit more hurried, and she actually got rebuked for that in the Gospels because she didn't make enough time to sit at the Lord's feet. But Mary was a different story. And sometimes, especially in New Jersey, you know, it's a very fast-paced society we live in, we can become very hurried, and we don't spend enough time at the Lord's feet. And that only works to our detriment. Then we find over time that there's a gap between us and our Lord. But it's not a gap that he created. It's a gap that we created. So consider that. Verse 32, Mary echoes her sister Martha's sentiments. Lord, if you had been there, my brother Lazarus would not have died. Now, Bible teachers and pastors speculate as to Mary's tone. They speculate as to Martha's tone. But there's a common denominator here, because both ladies say the same thing. 
And that common denominator is that they believe that Jesus had the absolute sovereignty over life and over death. And this is a theme that I've been covering the last few Sundays. When we come to the cross, we give up our sovereignty and replace it with the Lord's sovereignty. Is that an easy thing to do, especially in this area? Absolutely not. And it's a process. And over time, we start to learn and we walk with God. You know, what is it I'm supposed to wait for? What is it he's supposed to show me? And what is it I'm supposed to do? It's a partnership. It's a relationship. And over time, we see that happen a lot better. But we have to recognize God's sovereignty. He is a king. He's the potentate. He has the ability to do as the creator what he wants with his creation. And really, we don't pray to get stuff. We pray to fall in line so we can be a part of his will and not our will. 33. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. When I see something that makes my spiritual ears perk up, I often go back into my Greek text, and I find out what's going on here. What do these words mean? So in 33, it says, Jesus groaned in the spirit. Groaned. Well, I looked up that word. And that can mean, A, a snort as of a horse, like an angry horse, an indignation. Oh, that's curious. And he was troubled or agitated. And in verse 35, Jesus wept. And in verse 38, he groaned in himself again. Well, how do we make sense of this? Was Jesus sad and crying because his friend Lazarus died? Of course not, because Jesus knew where he was. And as we go further into this, I'm going to explain to you what the Bible says that God is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. And we're going we're gonna to walk through what the scripture says about where we go when we die. Right? It's, it's pretty neat. I believe he was angry because of what sin and rebellion has done to mankind. What Satan does, how he manipulates people. And this death and separation is a result of sin entering the world. Romans 5 tells us that. But he was also at the same time sad to see the effects of, on mankind. Right? He looks at us as the object of his af- affection. And I believe maybe even sorrowful that men and women wholesale reject him and his way of salvation to their own peril. Now, this is my speculation. But let's look at this. God is a sentient God. He has feelings. And he had competing emotions in this instant. Now, when we have competing emotions and we're up and down We have words for that because we're humans and sometimes we don't have control over emotions. But God is different. He can have these competing emotions and not be contradictory. Here's one. Hate the sin, be angry at the sin and what it's caused, but love the sinner. And I believe that was embodied here. And let's let's look at this. See, the cross of Christ was the perfect example of hating the sin and loving the sinner. 
I will use my, myself as an example because I'm a sinner. I'm your sinner pastor. So for the next few moments, you can think of me of your sinner pastor. And for the rest of my life, even though I'm a pastor, I'm still going to sin. And Jesus still had to die for those sins. So here you have God angry at my sin. Because even as a Christian, and I'm teaching you, I still sin. How offensive that is to God. So how does he deal with your sinner pastor? Well, 2,000 years ago, he sent his son to the cross. And my filthy sins were poured onto him, as well as yours and everyone into the world. And he hated those sins. And there was a moment in time where even Jesus, as he was communing with God on the cross, God had to turn and look away from his son for the first time in eternity. But wait a minute, they're all God. They're, They're connected. How could that be? Because the sin was so offensive. And Jesus, he didn't draw the short straw and say, oh, I guess I got to go to the cross. He did it because he loves us. So here you see those two competing emotions with hating the sin. So when God looks at your sinner pastor, he smiles. He looks at me with love, as he does with you. If you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, because Christ, he already looked disgruntled at his son when he bore your sin and my sin on that tree. Pretty impressive, isn't it? So what does he do with mankind? We've, we've walked away from him. We've rebelled wholesale as a people. Well, the answer was the cross. 37. So they said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind, right? we saw the many miracles that he performed and so did they, but we didn't actually see it. We see it through the words, but they did and they remembered it. So here's this Messiah figure, he's claiming to be God, and he opens the eyes of the blind, but here his friend Lazarus is dead four days. Couldn't he have prevented this man from dying? If you're following from last Sunday, this is the fifth time in this chapter where mere men and women have questioned the Lord's judgment. Imagine that. How could God do this and not do that? How could God heal this one and not heal that one? How could God allow, a loving God, allow this to happen? If I was God, I would, and you see 2,000 years later, that not much has changed. I'm sure you've had conversations with your friends or unsaved uh, loved ones. And, and I didn't grow up as a Christian. I might have had some of those conversations as well, but now I know better. See, God doesn't have to explain everything he does to us. It's really on a need-to-know basis. Let me give you an example. I think that if God was to explain every single thing he was going to do in our lives, in our future, it would probably scare the heck out of us. Now, if you've lived long enough, you've all, think about, maybe it might be painful, think about the worst trial you've endured. Some of the most painful things that have happened in your life. And then you've gotten past them. And as maybe even some of the memories are too painful to really think about or meditate on, you know that God has changed your character through that. God may not have necessarily done that to you or me. I've caused a lot of my own problems, but God allowed it to run its course. And I look back and say, I'm a different person now. Thank God, because I certainly wasn't fit to be up at this pulpit. I'm still not fit, but he's a merciful God. Now, Think about if God said to you two years beforehand, in two years, you're going to go through that. Well, we might have done a Jonah. We might have run away and said, oh no, I'm going to do everything I can to prevent that because it looks very scary when it's in the future. But once we go through it, in hindsight, we realize that things happened for our benefit. 
They shaped our character. They shaped who we are. You show me a person who's been through a lot, and I'll show you a person who has a lot of character. So, God does not necessarily, and he doesn't have to explain what's going to happen. But we need to walk with him through those encounters. 39. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me. Relationship. But because of the people who were standing by and watching, I added that, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. See, this is what I love about the scripture. It's not contrived. Jesus spent so many years trying to get people to believe. Even his closest followers, his friends, they still questioned his judgment. You know, it's amazing. And, And after the resurrection and the giving of the Holy Spirit, how these followers started to change for the positive. Verse 43, now when he said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound, hand and foot, with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Now in other cultures, embalming, they actually had other ancient cultures, had this practice before us, and in this culture, they didn't have that practice. You know, they would cover them with cloths and there would be spices and different ointments and it would, you know, make the body, it's it's a hot climate. Things happen quickly. It would make it palatable for the people around. So he's he's wrapped to a certain extent, probably came out looking like a mummy. I'm alive, but I can't move in these things. So Jesus said, let him go. Get those things off of him. He's fine. He's alive. Very impressive. Jesus comes to the tomb. He orders the the stone that goes to seal the tomb for various reasons. And Martha cautions Jesus, it's not going to be pretty. This is the sixth time that someone has looked at the Lord and asked him to rethink his decision. Quite frankly, that's a bad idea, Lord. Did you consider the decaying process? By now, there's going to be a stench, she says. But Martha, she was the more type A one of the sisters, more of the one who, you know, she was a thinker, she was a mover, she was a go-getter. She was wrong. She was wrong. Trying to outthink the Lord, sure you, you didn't consider this. She could not fathom the depth of the miracle that the Lord was going to perform. And I think even as believers, we limit God. We pray for little things. And then we pray half-heartedly for big things. Why? He's a big God. Never underestimate the power of what God can do in your life, personally. I think it's amazing that we even do it today. Lord, did you consider? Maybe we're even praying and we're so frustrated with the situation and things slip out of our mouth. Like, don't you see what's going on? How could you you allow that person to keep persecuting me? We don't get it. His ways are better than our ways. We need to trust him. Now, at this point, I think we have to explain a little bit uh, about death, the way we look at death and the way God sees death, because it's very important. I believe it'll make it less frightening as well. In the Old Testament, when a person died, 
the body decays. The soul, spirit, goes somewhere else, one of two places. Now, in the Hebrew, if you read your Old Testament, the word Sheol is there. Sheol in Hebrew can be translated, depending on context, pit, grave, or the realm of the dead. In other words, where the real, where you go, your essence, your personality, who you are. Where does that go? Into this realm of the dead. Understanding that in Sheol there were two compartments. Now in the New Testament it's called something different. The one compartment is called paradise or a place of Abraham, the great patriarch of faith, Abraham's bosom, his chest. We're really close to Abraham. Okay, so that's the one compartment. The other compartment has been called Hades. Really taken from classical Greek and Christianized in a sense. It's not a good place, Hades. Remember, in Luke chapter 20, Jesus said, God is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all those departed saints, they're not dead. Yeah, but I could see their tomb, and if I open it up, I can still see their bones. That's not them, who they are. That's just the vehicle that God gave them to negotiate this physical realm. They are with the Lord. He's the God of the living. In Luke 16, Jesus went on in greater detail about Abraham's bosom, the good place, right? And also the bad place. And they, believe it or not, at that one point, they could speak to each other, they could kind of see what was going on, but there was a great gulf fix that things could not be passed from one side to the other. So when the rich man who lived a self-centered life and a life against God, when he died and went into this bad place, he called out to Abraham and Lazarus, and he was just so miserable, he wanted a drop of water to cool his tongue. And they said, we, we can't pass anything to you. It's just a great chasm in between that. kind of blows your mind when you think about the afterlife and all the things that go on there. What happened to Christ's resurrection? Well, Christ emptied the part of Sheol that's paradise. Ephesians 4 tells us that before he ascended, he first descended. Uh, Isaiah 61, we can make the case as well there. And then, after the resurrection, when a saint dies, they're immediately present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, absent with the body, present with the Lord, like that. It's an immediate occurrence. So if I had a heart attack right now and I fell to the ground, as you watched my body fall, I wouldn't be there anymore. Who I am would, be, would go right to be with the Lord. Now, just to, again, it's, as, we, as we look towards the future, there's other resurrections, the harpazo or the rapture, where... The Lord does judge the earth, just like he did many times before for their sinfulness and their wickedness and their rebelliousness. He never judges the righteous with the wicked. He's never done that. That's, he's got an MO, so to speak, a modus operandi. So what he does is he'll remove his saints, have them come to be with him, and at the same time, when that's done, he will judge and you'll see the plagues and the things that happen in the book of Revelation. And we, had, we did a Revelation study. It was fascinating. Okay, so what I'm going to do is, uh, one thing, 1 Thessalonians 4, you know, uh, the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the trumpet of God, with the voice of an archangel, and the dead will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will also be caught up with them in the clouds of the air, and we'll always be with the Lord, comfort one another with these words. So that's that, that rapture or that future occurrence is going to happen before wholesale judgment. I want to turn to 1 Corinthians 15, because I want to hit this from another angle. And I think that you'll be blessed by this. 1 Corinthians 15, starting with verse 35. 
Now understand that the Corinthian church was a problem church. If, they, if there was a problem that church people could have, they had it. So the Apostle Paul, this was a very corrective letter. Now they started to listen to people who didn't really believe in the resurrection or had passed and things of that nature. So there's a little bit of a rebuke in here, but I'm going to use this for our purposes. He's explaining to them what happens when we die. Verse 35, but someone will say, well, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Of course, because we're so focused on our bodies. We look at them in the mirror. We fix ourselves for work. Body, my teeth, my hair, my, you know, I got to trim down. We're always looking at our bodies. So we're so body obsessed. I can see some laughs. And they were too. And he says in verse 36, foolish ones, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. In other words, if you had a kernel of wheat, it could sit here for 10 years until you actually throw it into the ground, let moisture hit it, let it germinate. It doesn't become something else. So it's sown one way, but it's reaped in a different way. It becomes a whole different crop. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fish, another of birds. There are also celestial or of the heavens, bodies, yeah, heavenly bodies. The angels have a body, and they can do amazing things. They can pass in and out of our realm and our dimension. Very impressive. And there's also... Uh, terrestrial bodies, which is of the earth, which is our bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. Make no mistake, these bodies are glorious. When you think about what the heart can do, how many times it pumps in a lifetime, the brain, we have a nurse here, we have uh, people in the medical field, it's very impressive. (laughs) Surgeons, right? They're blown away by the human body. It's a great machine. You know, we're confined, though, to one atmosphere of pressure on the earth, a certain percentage of, of oxygen in the air we breathe. Right? There's certain things that, you know, we're, we're confined to gravity and our body's designed to live like that. Uh, our, our innards are, are uh, sewn together by this, this tissue on the inside that keeps everything nice and tight when we move. So we're confined to this earth and God made our body, beautiful body, to negotiate around this physical realm. There is a glory of the sun, another of the moon, another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. Lazarus was a type of that. We go into the ground, there'll be a bodily resurrection in the future where we'll have new bodies. We won't be confined to gravity, we won't be confined to dimensions. Uh, Our body won't be ticking down to a heart attack or a brain aneurysm or something like that. It'll be an eternal body. And it's, it's, it's amazing. People say, oh, the Bible, it's made by simple minds. This isn't simple. This is very complex as he explains this. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. So it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The last Adam meaning Christ. So in other words, in Adam... God picked them up from the minerals that are found in the dirt and also in our bodies. Same thing. He breathed in a life-giving spirit. Now the first man was created. However, the second Adam, Christ, was a life-giving spirit. He gave us that, that, that new birth. 
to be born again, that new life, to be born of the Spirit. He breathed that into us as well. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. Does any, did anybody here have their uh, heavenly body yet, and now you got the physical one? No. You know? We're born of the earth. Later on, we get the, the new digs, you know, the new duds, pretty sharp. The first man was of the earth, made of the dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are also those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so are also those who are of the heavenly. As we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we're like him, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man, meaning Christ. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Whether it was the Tower of Babel or us trying to work our own way into heaven, flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. If we were to see God in all of his glory, in our form, we would, we would just be toast. We would be, you know, we'd just disintegrate because we can't. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep or euphemistic for die, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? So what Jesus did with Lazarus was a type. Check this out. He's in the, he's in the tomb. He's rotting. There's bacteria. There's gases being given off. Move the stone over. All of a sudden, he's back to the way he was. But Lazarus died again. How do I know this? Because if not, he'd be on Larry King and Oprah and all those shows saying, look at me, just like the first day. So <laughs> Lazarus died again, but he was a type of the resurrection. Pretty impressive. Let me just comfort you with this as well. I believe that everyone, that God gives everyone a chance at salvation. God is a fair God. So if you've been saved recently and you're concerned about your loved ones, well, tell them about your newfound faith. Tell them about God's love. But don't stress about those that have gone on before you. There are many who on their deathbeds have believed. There are many in countries that are persecuted right now, persecuting Christians, where the Lord's been coming in visions. People have been given everything up just to be Christians. Why would they do this in that culture? It's a death sentence because it's real. That's why. Um, the, the Romans were persecuting the Christians in the first few centuries, but it, it, they couldn't stop it. They could keep throwing, you know, the lions were all filled and the, the alligators and all the stuffs in the Colosseum with Christians' bones. But they still kept multiplying, and the Romans were scratching their heads saying, how is this happening? Then some Roman officials came to Christ. They could not stop it. So Constantine, uh, in the fourth century, made it a legal religion. Why? Because they, they saw the, res the resurrected Christ, they saw the miracles, they saw the power of the Holy Spirit. You couldn't stop it. Amen. Okay? So this is what's going on here. God is a good and fair God. 45. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went their way to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do for this man works many signs? If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, that's Joseph Caiaphas, he's a historical figure, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. 
Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one children of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Make no mistake, wherever the Lord is working, Satan is not far behind nipping at that work. It's the cycle of ministry. And Satan sometimes is successful in destroying the things that God sets up, not because he's stronger than God, because we allow him. And all of us in our lives, especially if we've been Christians for a while, we can see where we gave one over to him. He got a point on our behalf. Because we weren't close enough to the Lord, we allowed it to happen. I have a friend who's been a uh, pastor, Pastor Tom, for 30 years in ministry, and he said to me, I'm more concerned when things are going too smoothly in the church <laughs> because Satan does not attack dead ministries. 45 and 46, many of the Jews believed in him, but some told the religious leaders what was going on. And we will always have that dichotomy in response to what the Lord is doing. You have to wonder, how could a person see the work of the Lord and still harden their hearts like that. Dennis Rader, uh, you're familiar with him, the BTK killer, killed people for years, killed multiple people. He was the president of the council in the Lutheran church. Once the charges were levied against him, they had to find a new, new council president. Definitely was bad publicity. But the bottom line is you can be in a church your whole life and be there for the wrong reasons. And Satan does have his emissaries that he plants because that's what he does. So here's a man who was the president, a high-respected person in his church, and he was a killer by nighttime. All right? And these guys were career politicians, follow secular history, and they mixed it with spirituality, and it didn't work. Now, 47 and 48 show us that the chief priests who were on the side of the Sadducees, again, this is all historical. Everything that I'm telling you today, you can go into your history books and find, oh, yeah, wow, yeah, the Bible, yeah, of course it is. And archaeologists do the same thing. Grudgingly, reluctantly, they'll use the Bible when they start digging because it tells you this many miles from this city to that city and they don't want to waste money. It's a, you know, there's a lot of money involved in digging these de deserted places up and they want to find something, so that's what they do. They find cities. There's all these articles that I've collected about the Philistines and um, you know, Pontius Pilate. Oh, they didn't exist. Well, the 40s, the 50s, the 70s, the 80s, they found all these cities that the Bible said were always there. So it's, it's pretty wild. So anyway, you have your chief priests, your Sadducees. You had your Pharisees, who were a common enemy. However, when they saw Jesus, they realized that he had the ability to remove both of them from their positions, so they banded together to fight him. Right? Now, what happened? The Romans took away their temple and their nation anyway. It's history. A.D. 66 through 70, the Roman-Jewish War. At the end, they leveled the temple. Uh, as a matter of fact, Joseph Caiaphas and Pontius Pilate, a few years after the crucifixion, the Romans deposed them as well. So even though they wanted to get rid of Jesus and they were successful, their political aspirations were ground to a halt. God was done with them. Okay. Now, this is what this goes to show us, that under the name of religion, we can try to hold on to things. And, you know, 2,000 years later, what is it this morning that we're trying so hard to hold on to that the Lord may be saying, I'm not in it? It's like if you take sand 
and you hold your hands loosely, you can probably hold that sand. Start clenching your fist and tightening it up. The sand will start to slip through your fingers. Sometimes the more we hold on to something, the more we use our will, the more we use our strength, the more we use our power, it still escapes us. So I think as believers, let's not just look, oh yeah, they were bad guys, they're bad, we're good, (laughs) 2,000 years later. No. What is it that we may be holding on to that the Lord is just not in, that we have to let go and let go to him and trust him with it? 47, this man does many miracles. What are we going to do about it? Their religion was a dead religion. Now, Judaism wasn't a dead religion, but the hypocritical leadership and how they presented it was dead. And dead religion always has to go after a work of the Spirit, even today. You find a ministry that's on fire and people are getting saved and things are happening. I've talked to many pastors. I meet with a lot of pastors. A lot of times, where's your opposition? From the world, the community? No. It's from the self-righteous, entrenched, cultural Christian community, the stuffy community. They're the ones that will go after a work of the Spirit. Parallels 2,000 years later, you could make a dozen of them. 49 through 53. Joseph Caiaphas prophesied that Jesus, that one man, would die for the nation. This is amazing because... In Isaiah 53, it says the same thing. We need a scapegoat. Somebody's got to die so that this whole powder keg that's starting to erupt starts to cool down. Leviticus 16 tells us right away that the scapegoat, that word scapegoat in our English, comes from Leviticus 16. They take the goat and they would confer, and it was all figurative, and they would send the goat out. But that was the scapegoat. Put the, the, the offenses, the sins... Send that goat out into the wilderness. And they needed a scapegoat, and it was Jesus. Imagine knowing God's will and being on the wrong side of it. And that's where they were. Look at Jonah. Did he go to the Ninevites? Did he preach to them? Did the Ninevites get saved? Yeah, but he hated the Ninevites. And as much as he tried to get away from them, God said, No, I'll do whatever I have to do. You're going to preach to the Ninevites. But he despised the Ninevites. Joseph Caiaphas knew that one man had to die for the people. And not only for the Jewish people, he says it, but for the other people, the Gentiles. Right there in Scripture, but he was on the wrong side of the prophecy. 54. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, or Jewish leadership, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they saw Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? That he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. So, in the same meeting... They're plotting his death, and then they go out and they go to purify themselves in case they offended God in any way. It was this purification process. i got to tell you, can we do the same thing? Can we be talking with our Christian brothers and sisters and friends about God and the Scripture, and before the conversation is over, we're gossiping about somebody? Oh, you know, Lord, I'm so sorry for my sins. 
And, and this is what happens. It's, it's human nature. It's a shame. You say, I love the Lord with one breath and then do things that hurt what the Lord is doing in the other. It's hypocritical. And I have to tell you that the biggest turnoff to anybody from the outside world coming into any church is hypocrisy. Well, they just want my money. That's one of them. But hypocrisy, I think, is way up there. Oh, they're just phonies. I, I just can't deal with this. Let's not be that. Let's look at this and see how we can apply it to our own lives so we can present a loving atmosphere to those coming in off the street who are looking and they're lost. Let's not turn them away with hypocrisy. See, Jesus is always relevant. I don't care what generation you're in. Always relevant. But sometimes it's his people that set a bad example. And I've been there, so I'm not, you know, trust me, from the pulpit to the pews, we can all be that at some point or any other, and it's wrong. But it comes down to this. When you behold the power of God, as we close, you have a decision to make which side you want to come down on. The first step is to believe. In this short chapter, that word believe is used nine times. What does that mean? We look at the claims that God makes. They're pretty wild. Everlasting life. Um, I mean, just being in heaven with God, our sins are forgiven, doesn't matter what I did. That's pretty wild. So we scrutinize, we investigate, we look at his claims and his proofs. And we can either choose, when we're presented with the evidence, to believe, to trust in him with everything that we have, all of our fiber, or to harden our hearts. How could they discount Lazarus' resurrection? Well, they they discounted Jesus' resurrection. And when the rich man was in this place of Hades, and he's speaking to Father Abraham across that gulf in the good place, he says, well, send somebody from the dead. Maybe send Lazarus so he could tell my brothers because they're not saved. And Abraham said, even if somebody should rise from the dead, they still won't believe. That was a type of the rejection after the resurrection, right? Jesus' own empty tomb and even today. Now, I would say this. If you're not a believer, if you're not a believer, God makes some pretty wild promises to you this morning. As an individual, he loves you. He sent his son to die for you. Yeah, I just walked in off the street. A friend made me come today. I'm still kind of questioning this. Well, I'm just going to tell you that the Bible says there's a whole bunch of promises for you, the individual. And in the sea of faces, whoever you are, God is speaking to you through his word. You have the decision to either believe, to come forth whole out of that tomb like Lazarus did. He's a type of regeneration, or you can stay in the tomb. People never die. God is the God of the living. You have assurance in this book where you go after you die if you're a believer. Read this again. John 11, 25 through 26. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. I embody this concept. It's not just words on a page. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So let me ask you this this morning. Do you believe this? Individual, do you believe this? If you're a believer, maybe there's something in your life or my life that needs to be resurrected. Maybe there's something that we let stagnate for a while. And just as Jesus cleaned up the the bacteria, just cleaned up the decaying process, and Lazarus came out, good as new. Spotless, shiny, not smelly. Okay? There may be something in our life that he needs to resurrect. Will we give that over to him as a believer? 
To the unbeliever, you can stay in the tomb of the world. You can stay, even though you're alive physically, you're dead spiritually. To the believer, even more tricky, we can stay in the tomb of the flesh. Even as a believer, the Bible says, the flesh and the spirit war against each other, and the war is greater when you're in Christ. Because now the stuff that you enjoyed doing that was incredibly sinful, you actually have to fight to not do that. You have to, by an act of your will, say, no, I want to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. So as a believer, do we want to stay in the tomb of the flesh, of self-centeredness, of narcissism? I believe narcissism is on the rise in this country. We're so obsessed with ourselves that we can't see the person right next to us. The tomb of comfort. So, this morning, what is it about my life that needs to be resurrected? Only you can answer that, but the Lord is willing. He's called Lazarus. He commanded him to come forth. He also commands us as well. There's many commands in this book. It's a choice whether we will do it or whether we will stay where we are. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power that it it evokes, Lord. we We can change to not reading the Bible from the pulpit. We could talk about current events. We could sing songs all day. We can just chat and have questions and answers, or we can use your word. And when we-